Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 286, and today's guest is Ryan Nelson, partner at Joby. What do the following brands have in common? Casamigos, Skims, Fenty Beauty, Aviation Gin, and Beats by Dre. Well, they all have a celebrity as a co-founder. While celebrities can land a lucrative endorsement deal, it pales in comparison to what the outcome can be if you own part of a company that is successful. The pairing of a brand with a celebrity founder just makes sense as one of the core ingredients that they typically bring to the table is a massive following. However, you can't just launch a brand and expect that consumers will be customers, especially over the long run. It needs to be a quality product that is filling a void for consumers, plus it needs to be a match for the celebrity with a compelling story behind it, which I think is the other key ingredient. This is where Joby comes in and specializes. Its startup venture studio is focused on launching consumer brands in partnership with celebrities and influencers. Ryan is a co-founder and board member of HomeCourt, which is a home-focused consumer brand founded by Courtney Cox with a collection of fragrance-infused luxury cleaning and household products. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Ryan's advice as a mixed-race professional on what can be done to improve the diversity numbers across investors and employees at startups, his background story, plus the details of his own startup and lessons learned, Joby's approach and the role it plays around building companies, plus how they identify products and partner with celebrities, the full story of home court and why Courtney Cox was a perfect match, information about Joby's experiential division and its interactive art experiences like Inter, e-commerce predictions and the key elements that go into building a successful consumer brand, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. If you have been enjoying the VentureFizz podcast, then please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the more that people will discover these amazing stories about entrepreneurs and investors. Thanks in advance. I appreciate your support. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ryan. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here. Really excited for our conversation. Likewise, I'm excited to talk to you because your firm is investing into an area that is very current and very interesting, and that's building brands and aligning those with celebrities. So we're going to talk about how that all works and the different brands that you're representing. Um, but before we get into that, I did want to talk about something that's very uh, important and it's on the radar for uh, you know the tech industry as it should be, and that's diversity. So uh, as a venture capitalists, what do you think we could be doing to build more diverse numbers of investors that are, are writing checks? It's a great question. Diversity is something that's very near and dear to my heart. Uh, personally, I'm mixed race, white and black. Um, so, you know, I, I'd say there is a good moral reason to do it. Um, and, it and it just makes sense for a whole variety of other reasons. In terms of how to achieve this, uh, there's, there's a, a lot of different things we can do. And I think one, it starts at education. Um, it's encouraging you know, students to uh, learn about venture capital at a young age. It's about giving access to students for internships, um, you know, really building that uh, interest in them so that they want to seek out these jobs. Personally, as, as I was growing up, I wasn't really even aware of what venture capital was, didn't understand it, didn't know that it was a career field. And so I had to learn um, you know, over my career about it. 
So I think we can do a lot um, in the schools. And then I think, you know, a lot of operators um, become venture capitalists. So it's important for startups themselves to have diverse teams. And, you know, if you have diverse teams there, some of those people will go on to be venture capitalists. Everybody that's in the venture community should just challenge themselves um, to go out and, you know, when you're recruiting, try to seek out people that are, are different from your from your own background. Yeah. And, and from what I've learned uh, from some great founders out there, like David Cancel from Drift and others, you want to be thinking about building a diverse team for your start from day one, not just, you know, oh, you know, we're a hundred people in and now we need to start thinking about diversity. So do you have any advice on what founders can be doing as it relates to that? Yeah, I, you know, like I was, I was starting to say earlier, I think it is very important. And I mean, there's a whole variety of reasons, but one of them is just that, you know, our country, the consumer base is very diverse. And I think to, to people in better reach and understand your, your consumers, how, how to achieve it. I think it's about one, the, 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 the company and the atmosphere that you build. Um, it's about like the values. Uh, to make sure that you are appealing to these types of demographics. So, for example, if you have a culture that's, let's say, in the tech community, very bro-heavy, you know, maybe it won't be appealing for females. So I think one is just setting the right atmosphere. Two is about um, actively marketing to those people. It's, you know, encouraging, like, maybe you could reach out to student associations if you're hiring new hires, um, like, you know, female entrepreneur associations, what have you. Um, and then once you have a couple of these employees, you know, people tend to like hire their friends or not hire their friends, but like reach out to their own social groups when they're looking for new hires. So I think it's really about getting the ball going. And then I think that you'd kind of start finding momentum that would help uh, build it up. But you're right. You need to start doing it very, very early on, or it can be harder to pivot the company later. There'll just be too much momentum um, in terms of the culture and the types of people that you have there. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Great advice. All right, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a child? Yeah, I was always very academic and studious. My, my parents were involved in education. Um, so it was something they instilled in me from a very young age. I developed an intellectual curiosity. I've always, um, you know, loved to learn, loved to read books and, and loved to explore new topics. And I think that's something that, you know, has been with me from a young age and has continued to form, you know, how I approach my, my, you know, I, my parents would also say I was always a bit of um, an explorer or an adventurer. Uh, so fr from a young age, you know, I've, I've been scuba diving since age 12. Nobody else in my family scuba dives. Um, so it's like, I like to take on new challenges, uh, you know, and honestly, my career, I've spent a number of years overseas, whereas everybody in my family lives in Chicago um, and didn't even have passports for a while. You know, I've, just got a second passport for a European country. Um, so I've always sort of had this uh, streak in me. And I think that's something that also has continued to inform my, my professional life. All right. So you graduated uh, from Harvard. So, so what did you study there? And like, what did that experience teach you? Yeah, it was a, a very relevant field, government. Liberal arts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it, it, it was it was very interesting. You know, you do what we call government. Other people call it um, basically political studies. So learned a lot about the American government, international relations, comparative politics, and then also political theory. Um, you know, I've found that very interesting. And I think 
to a certain extent, the type of thinking you develop is, is helpful. Um, looking back, part of me wishes that the curriculum had been a little bit more business focused. Personally, you know, I think there are some students who go to undergraduate business programs, and I think those do a very decent job of preparing you for the business world, both in terms of teaching you about the types of jobs that are out there, um, but also giving you very practical skills um, that, that will suit you on the job. Uh, so some of the government classes don't really require Excel, for example. Um, but, you know, I'm very happy with my school choice. So what did you do after graduating? Yeah, after graduating, I, so I mentioned I had this bit of an explorer streak in me. I ended up moving to, well, I was exploring doing graduate school and um, political theory in the Middle East, and it applied to graduate programs there. Ultimately, for a number of reasons, decided not to go. I instead moved to China for a year, and I took intensive Mandarin classes. I did an internship uh, in public relations for an American company, and then, you know, tried to travel as much as possible in between all that. Um, after spending a year in China, I ultimately decided not to not to stay there. I tried to work in Europe, uh, between Europe and the Middle East, and get a job in consulting. Ultimately landed doing management consulting in Dubai, based out of the Dubai office. Worked in, you know, basically the tech, media, and telco practice. Advised clients across marketing and sales and customer care. Uh, consulting is a great way to learn a lot uh, about the business world and about, you know, how companies operate or how they should operate or how you can make them better. Uh, you also learn a decent amount about client management, um, you know, team organization and all of that. And for me, it was very fun to do that in an environment like the Middle East. We also did projects in Africa and Southeast Asia. We just had a crash course in navigating different cultures and, you know, different ways of living. Um, so it was a very, very exciting time in my life. Uh, you know, I had a, travel, a chance to travel to many different countries, you know, and for me, it was so exciting. When I, when I joined my office, the company was called Oliver Wyman. When I joined my office, we were 30 consultants, but 24 different nationalities, um, which is something that, you know, I just, I loved. And, you know, to a certain extent, you still get that in New York and I have it with my uh, current team. So um, you decided to go back to B-School and, and went to Wharton. So what was your thought there as far as uh, getting your MBA? Yeah, I wanted to go back to business school um, and I'm, for a variety of reasons, but ultimately I made the decision because I didn't want to stay in management consulting and I wanted to switch over to a new industry. And, you know, people say business school is a great way to do that, um, as well as, you know, you make a lot of great connections there that can serve you through life. And I thought that would be like a worthwhile thing to, to pursue. There's also a part of me that just wanted to have two years to, uh, you know, have fun. And, you know, I think when you have worked for a while and then you go back to school, you appreciate it so much more. So there were actually a variety of classes I was interested in taking. You know, I mentioned I did liberal arts and as an undergrad studied government. So missed out on some of the more business focused classes. So I was actually really excited to go to business school and take things like finance, um, you know, that class on venture capital, there's random subjects like real estate that I wanted to learn about. So was, was very excited to get back in an academic environment as, as well as to think about, you know, what is the right career for the next phase of my life. So what, what did you do after getting your MBA? Yeah, so I, I'd say mm -hmm. while I was at MBA, I became very interested in entrepreneurship. 
uh, and, and the venture world in particular as well. What the first stop I made was in, to invest in banking, which is something that I think many people do. You know, Absolutely. I was I was viewing it as a as a way to basically have a crash course in finance. To you know, I had a really good toolkit from consulting um, in terms of let's say like general business, like how companies operate, how to improve operations. But what I was missing was was the financial, like the finance toolkit. And so investment banking, you know, gave me that very quickly. I was uh, working in effectively what's like the private equity coverage group. And so got to work with very sophisticated clients and learn, you know, what do private equities look for when they're buying businesses, when they're selling businesses, like how do you, how do you, uh, you know, appeal to different consumers? What do you need to have right internally? What are the selling points? And for us, you know, ultimately, like I, I work at a venture studio now, as we create businesses, we're always trying to think about this, like, what do we need to have rights so that we can ultimately exit the business in, you know, five, six, 10 years from now when we're, when we're ready. So found it a very, very good learning experience. I also reaffirmed that investment banking was not what I wanted to do for my long-term career. Um, and, and so I left that to ultimately try to pursue my own company in social media. Uh, just felt like, you know, trying to do my own venture was something that I, that I really needed to pursue. It was a, a risk that I needed to take in my life. And, and so I took that step. So what were the details on the startup that you were the founder of? Yeah, uh, it was a company <laughs> called Most, Mostis. Ultimately, we were trying to be uh, like America's Got Talent meets Instagram. So it was a social media app to help you create, enter, and judge image and video contests. This was in a world that was right before Musical.ly came on the scene. Mm -hmm. And the problem we were trying to solve was, you know, people on Instagram, uh, People on social media generally are often trying to get famous or you know get their 15 minutes of fame but at the time a lot of the algorithms weren't really set up to help new people get discovered if you had a lot of followers it was great but for those new people it's tough to rise and stand out our thought was you know we could create an app where people could like one anybody could create a contest so i could enter a snowboarding contest and you know submit my video of me doing a really cool trick other people, instead of just passively looking and maybe you like something, maybe you don't, doesn't really matter. You could rate each of these entries on a five-star scale, kind of like a fun swiping motion. And at the end of the day, you'd have worthy people stand out and get and get discovered and rise to the top. Um, so that, that's like how we were approaching it. You know, we had like a monetization plan. Um, I think by the time I was able to get the app to market, Musical.ly was just starting to really take off. You know, looking back, I think social media is tough for a variety of reasons. Uh, there's starting to be app fatigue. Ultimately, I think there's really only room for one, maybe two social media apps to take off at any given time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like when I digested everything and looked back, I think what we were missing in particular was what I, what I like to call like the single value, uh, single user value proposition, which is, you know, for, for apps, like ultimately I would rely on a community, like you need 10,000 or whatever number of people to be on there um, to really get the community and the momentum going. But what wasn't there is a use case for when there's only one person on the app. And in the early days, there's going to be very few. So, you know, I think things like Instagram started off and they were tools that, you know, people could put a cool filter on their photo and then share it to Facebook. Ultimately, you'd share it into the Instagram community as well. And then the community would build up that way. 
if I could go back and do things differently, I would have put in some sort of use case for my app for when there's only one person. Uh, that, that was a key learning that I had that came out of it all. Um, ultimately, I spent you know around two years trying before ultimately deciding to to, to, to sort of shelve it and to move on, um, and you know went back to consulting for a bit before ultimately joining the company that I'm at now, Joby. Yeah, let's talk about Joby. So, um, like, how does it differentiate from other firms? It's a you know it's a venture studio. So, talk about that and, and what you guys do. Yeah. So. Uh, when I joined, we were more focusing on uh, venture capital. Um, there was a fund that was deployed, so I joined to help support our portfolio companies. Um, there's also like a connected family office that I was helping to set up for one of my partners. You know, partially because I have an entrepreneurial bent. You know, I was really pushing us to become a venture studio. You know, we were seeing a lot of our portfolio companies. They go through the same, let's say, challenges. They 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 go through the same learning process. And our thought was, you know, if we can like set up our own companies, like from the start, we can try to design them in a way to overcome some of the challenges that other others have to like learn on their own. Um, as well as, you know, I think there's, you know, we take sweat equity in the venture. So I think the economics make, make sense as well. Um, but basically it was just using my own expertise from having done my startup, you know, investment banking, consulting, uh, as well as my partners. You know, one of them is from, uh, his family business. They're one of the largest retailers in the Middle East. Um, they operate a lot of mass market fashion and food and beverages brands there. So he understands physical retail, you know, very, very well. And then my third partner, you know, had been at uh, venture studios, incubators like Rocket Internet before, as well as had a financial toolkit. So our skill sets combined were, were, were basically perfect to be able to provide some, you know, operational hands-on know-how um, to help the, the founders uh, that we build the team or build the company around to, to scale the companies. Um, so that's roughly like how we were uh, thinking of like how we could add value. We also, you know, help arrange the initial round of financing. We do a lot of the early ideation and I'd say we, we half-baked concepts and then we bring in the, let's say the, the, the CEO or core management team we'll find and source like a, a celebrity talent partner. And then all together, we um, finalize exactly what the brand's gonna be, you know, what the products are gonna be. We do it all together so that we all legitimately feel like co-founders. We're all very happy and, and very passionate about what we're building. Um, and particularly when you have a celebrity on board, I think that's, you know, very, very important, which you know, I'm sure we can, we can talk about. Yeah, I want to definitely want to drill into that because it there was I don't know when it started. I mean, I, the first celebrity founder that you know just started to really make waves was you know from my recollection was Jessica Alba with the Honest Company and what she was creating there. And you know, fast forward, it seems like there's a whole slew of celebrities that have brands out there. Obviously, the Kardashians have multiple things going on. And Kylie Jenner is incredibly success successful with her cosmetic brand. You got George Clooney and his partner with Casamigos and Ryan Reynolds with Aviation Gym and Mint Mobile. So there's so many tie-ins now where I would think celebrities are kind of looking at their peers being like, hmm, <laughs> that seems interesting. How do I get involved? Yeah. Yet there's got to be um, you know, a reason why they're getting involved and a good product that consumers would actually want to purchase. So let's 
digest that of the celebrity movement towards uh, you know owning companies and you know having their their personal brand tied to to a company. Yeah, I mean you're you're right. I think there were there were definitely some first movers who who did phenomenally well and really set the way. Um, you know, for me, this as a consumer investor, I was seeing that their D2C brands were struggling, you know, let, let's say like the late 2018 into 2019 timeframe. And there are these other companies that would come on the scene and they would grow really quickly. And one of these, let's say the unfair advantages we were noticing companies had is that they were partnering with celebrities um, or, or influencers. You know, and you know, I think yeah, like the Kylie Jenners of the world really showed that you could make massive companies very quickly and take it to the next level. Um, but still by 2019, I don't know if people were approaching this in a systematic way. I think there were a couple of venture studios that were starting, but when we were talking to initial investors, people were like, wait, what are you guys doing? You're trying to like, let's say, distill this down into a recipe and, and, and do it over and over again. Um, and I think that was something that's strange. Flash forwards now, right? I mean, uh, every, everybody has one, um, you know, certain categories in particular, I think are, you, you could say almost oversaturated, for example, beauty. Yeah. Um, beauty and, and alcohol. Alcohol is definitely saturated. <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> Absolutely. You know, but like, yeah, so alcohol is oversaturated. I'd say there's certain spirits within alcohol that are oversaturated. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I, I've wondered, are there like rum hasn't really had its moment in the sun? You know, I wonder if there's something that you could do there in an authentic way. But yeah, we, we tend to stay away from alcohol. We tend to stay away from beauty because um, as you mentioned, I think there's just too many and it's tough to tell that authentic story that we think is so important for for each of these brands um but yeah the, the, the world has shifted and now you know there's terms in terms of creator economy you know founder-led brands and so i think uh, everybody gets it now um and I, I think the trick is less about explaining to people why it makes sense but it's how to do it in such a way that you can still stand out um, and resonate with consumers when so many other people are, are actually doing it you know the unfortunate reality is with, you know, CAC, uh, CAC, like customer acquisition costs where they are and platforms like Facebook and, you know, Google being increasingly expensive. I think that celebrity brands are still here to say because it, it does make sense to, to partner with a celebrity influencer who can help you get that initial awareness through their own platform and help keep marketing costs down. So, you know, I, I don't think it's a trend that's going to go away too, too soon. Well, let's talk about one of your portfolio companies that uh, that you know came together and the story behind it. Uh, home Court. So, what is Home Court? Yeah, Home Court is a premium fragrance, uh, let's say luxury household product brand, um, helmed by Courtney Cox as the founder and and, and Sarah Yankee as the CEO. Um, you know, the the story there, we, we launched it around a year ago, so it's just completed its first year uh, anniversary, something we're very excited about. Um, you know, I think it's going tremendously well. There's been amazing reception at one, like an Allure Best of Beauty Award, which, you know, in the category is very, uh, very coveted. I think, you know, one of the things that really stands out there is at the end of the day, you know, we're we've taken household cleaning products, hand soaps, candles, you know, and done them in a very elegant way where um, they're, they're almost like the first beauty brand for the home, right? And it's something that I think nobody had really tried with that category before. And, you know, I think the team uh, on that did an exceptional job with that and something that's really resonated with people. You know, even myself, 
I'm a male. I've never been super into beauty products, but you know, on my counter, I definitely have uh, you know bottles of home court, including the cleaning spray. I just keep it right out there on the counter because I think it's so beautiful. Um, you know, when you clean with it, it smells you know very nice, refreshing scent. It's, it's wonderful. And I, I mean, I, and I think that's the key, right? It's like I'm sure there was elements of the ingredients that made this a better product, but it's also the presentation with the packaging where it is something that looks very different than what you would find with most brands in the same category. So, and then the, so how did you decide to partner up with Courtney Cox on this? Yeah, you know, we, um, let's be, one of my partners had a, a personal connection to her and, you know, she's somebody that we were very excited to have the chance to work with. I think her personal brand is obviously tremendous. She's a household name across the world, has been around for, you know, a number of years and has that, let's say that the brand staying power, she continues to be relevant. Uh, obviously Friends is a tremendous show. The younger generations continue to watch that, but, you know, she has a variety of other projects, including things that launched last year, um, which was, you know, beneficial for the brand because, you know, when you're talking about, you know, your new projects, you can also talk about the brand. So there's some, um, you know, synergies on that front. You know, and when we look for celebrity partners, we look for, you know, obviously a great personal brand, a limited history of, let's say, scandals to a certain extent that, you know, if there are scandals that could have some blowback in the brand. But then we look for somebody who's just like an authentic, genuine person um, who doesn't already have four or five brands under their belt. Uh, you know, that's something that, that fit with her. She was very excited about, you know, the ideas and really contributed to making home court what it is. And that's something that, you know, I think stands out uh, and, and customers can really tell, you know, I mean, the, the, the leading fragrance that we have CC is actually her own personal fragrance. So I remember one of the early meetings when we were talking about doing fragrance and she was like, oh, I have, uh, you know, I have this, like, I'm known for my own scent. And she, like, has two or three essential oils and a perfume that she mixes together to get her own custom scent. And it's something that we spent a long time trying to replicate. And, you know, I think it's my favorite scent. I think it's consumers' favorite scent. But it's like that that authenticity really, you know, comes through. Um, you know, I mean, there are, there are other things. Like, she gave us a tour of her house. She uh, She showed us some of her cleaning hacks where she puts, like dish soap, like a fragrance dish soap in the toilet and then flushes it and it just like scents the bathroom. Um, and so we were like, we were just looking at this and we're like, this, this concept, this brand is perfect for you. Like this is, right. this is who you are. Um, you know, there, there's other things we're looking for in celebrity partners, like great uh, social media following, you know, great uh, customer and consumer engagement, let's say. And, you know, she had joined Instagram, I think maybe like a year before and had already reached 9 million followers. Um, you know, it was open to being more present and more vocal on Instagram. And you know, I don't know if you follow her, but she has like, she's done a tremendous job on social media. You know, her videos are amazing. Not, not even just videos to support the brand, but just videos like for herself. Like she has like a cooking series. You know, she always has like guests, like, you know, she has so many friends who are musical and does like singing with them. So, you know, all across the board, we just thought like she's perfect to, to work with and would be perfect to be a founder of her own brand where she's passionate about it. And, you know, as a consumer, and like you said, she is widely known. So I was just thinking, I'm like, wait, 
this product line matches her. And it was almost like the trifecta where it matched her character, Monica, too. Right? Like, uh, yeah, that's something we we thought about. You know, I mean, admittedly, in the, in the journey, we were positioning, we were thinking about being a little bit more of like a lifestyle brand, the star, you know, this we we initially started getting it going right as COVID was hitting. You know, we thought about one of our first products being candles. And then ultimately, you know, over a couple months when we were working on things, a couple other celebrities figured out, hey, candles is a great idea and, and dropped a candle brand. Mm-hmm. So we knew we couldn't be um, just candles at the start. And you know, the cleaning thing was something that was always on our on our radar because of her, uh, because of Monica, and both because, like I said, I think she is actually like a clean freak. Like that's who that's who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, to a certain extent, we want to stay away from friends and not rely on that too much. Um, that's something that's always been you know a sensitivity, a, a balance there. But ultimately, you know, it it just resonates with with her who she is and so we went with it and, and the creative team did a really nice job you know helping to shape the brand with her input and make it this very beauty brand very elevated way to do cleaning products because I, I don't think it would have worked if it you know wasn't the, the beauty brand for the home right I think then it wouldn't really work with, with who she is. Now, Joby provides a whole host like a venture studio would like you that the whole you know packaging, design, marketing, customer acquisition, order and fulfillment, right? Like you guys do the full suite of running the business. So we, we, we help with all that. We have certain shared resources. So ultimately our goal is that each of the companies we set up should be its own fully formed and operating company mm-hmm. a couple of years from now. You know, at the start, we provide certain shared resources. So as I said, we are very involved in the planning and the initial ideation and in the lead up to launch, we're very hands-on. The idea is that after launch, we'll slowly step back until we're just on the board of advisors. You know, we have um, like an operations person who really does help to do the sourcing, helps to set up the fulfillment, everything you mentioned, you know, can help a little bit thinking through like the products. Uh, we have a director of growth marketing. so we help make sure that, you know, everything that the paid and the organic social strategy is, is set up using best practices. Um, and, and we continue to do that post-launch. But yes, over time, we're slowly transitioning out of those when the company is ready to make those full-time hires. And, you know, there, there's a couple benefits of that. One is that it's leaner for the company. It's, you know, it's better for the investor, you know, because their cash is being used more efficiently. Instead of hiring a director of growth full-time when you don't really need that person, you can have 50% of our, you know, ours. Um, and, and so you're saving on that money while this person, you know, has done this before they know the recipe or the playbook, let's say. And so they can make sure that everything's set up with, with best practices. Right. So I think it's a, a it's a win-win situation. Um, yeah. And there, and then over time, you know, as a venture studio, we want to grow the services that we can, we can provide, but we do also want to leave wiggle room that each CEO that we set up, if they want to, you know, use their own team, or maybe they want to bring somebody in-house sooner, we give them that flexibility, right? We don't want to uh, hamper their ability to ultimately set up the company in the way that they want to. So it's a game and it's, let's say, a negotiation or things that we have to figure out each time as a, as a Joby family. And do you have a goal of, hey, I, you know, we want to launch a new brand every year or a couple brands or like, like how do you think about you know, going to market with these ideas? Yeah. 
I mean, it's, it's a great question. It's one we think about all the time. I mean, ultimately, we want to do one first home court and, and, and figure out, like, make sure we get everything in place and we learn what works, what doesn't work. We're in the process of doing a second one. We have, we have that in motion. It should hit later this year. Uh, we're starting to plan a third and possibly a fourth. You know, I think if you do too many, you, you run the risk of not doing each one well, not having that authentic story that we really want to focus on. So the number, I think for us, the right number is somewhere between one and four. And I think for the time being, it's probably going to be around one or two a year so that we can continue to focus on quality. Now, you're also involved in other things, like you have an interactive art experience as well. So talk about that. Yeah, we, you know, as, as, as Joby, we have a couple different related but separate entities, one of which is Joby Experiential. You know, with Joby Brands, we've been doing, let's say, brands that start off D2C will be on the channel eventually. But it's, you know, we sell products and you don't have to leave your couch to, to get them. You know, I think that's the way the world is moving uh, to a certain extent. But with Joby Experiential, we wanted to do something different. We wanted to build in-person physical experiences that give you a reason to get off your couch you know, go do something in the city, you know, bring friends together, or, you know, meet, meet, meet strangers. And so what we've launched is an interactive art experience or interactive art journey, we like to call it. Um, it's called Inter in Soho. We launched a couple months ago, or I'd say we launched uh, what we call an MVP or a beta. Uh, we're, we're adapting a little bit of, let's say, a lean startup uh, product methodology there. Um, and the idea is that people can come, they can leave, you know, the chaos in their, of New York City and their worries behind and step into a space that's going to help them, you know, be mindful, be present, but, but really have fun and engage with different interactive experiences um, that, that, you know, are artistic and beautiful to a certain extent, Instagrammable, um, but really just provide a shelter for half an hour to an hour. Um, out, out of their day where they can come and just relax and, and, and be and be themselves. Which I thought was very unique. You know, it's like to see a you know venture run company that is usually focused on building product and hopefully there'll be some type of exit. Like this is a, a different way of approaching things of just, you know, creating these experiences for people to enjoy. And obviously I'm sure there's a revenue expectation too, but there's uh, more of the experience element. Yeah, I think, look, we are, I, I think some people view us as, hey, you, you guys are finance people. Um, you know, we view ourselves as dreamers, creatives, right? I think everybody who's involved with creating a brand or creating something needs to be a bit of a dreamer and a creative. And so, you know, the interactive art experience is just another manifestation of that. You know, we have creative partners on that, you know, like artists who have helped us bring the vision to life. Um and shape it into into what it is, but it's a it's a passion project, and hopefully consumers will will sense that. You know, it's not a cash grab, right? I mean, the way the way we're launching it, we're um, trying to do it and and really listen to the consumer, the market feedback in terms of what they like, what they don't like. We take all the reviews very very seriously, and we're continuously evolving it. So every couple of weeks, we're doing something new um, until we get it to the level that we're really happy with. And even then, every six months or so, we'll have to do some sort of creative refresh to see people coming in. But, you know, it, for us, it's a passion project, I'd say. 
So I wanted to get your thoughts on the world of e-commerce. Obviously, you're in this business, but you're building things that are very uh, unique and you know uh, aligned with a celebrity. But you know, through COVID, there was a tremendous amount of e-commerce activity from your individual seller of a product that was selling through Amazon to large companies like Wayfair, right? Where they saw this spike of e-commerce activity that once people started going out and shopping and getting to more of a normal life again, dipped. And, you know, some of those companies are are unfortunately having some some pain due to that. So, so, so what are your thoughts on like the long-term e-commerce strategy and an and overall direct-to-consumer market? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great question. It's a great point. Um, it's something that we think about all the time. For me, I think the right answer is ultimately every brand in the future, I don't want to say every brand, but most brands will probably need to be omni-channel. And, and certainly as we're developing brands, we are going into that with that outlook. We are starting D to C because it's, you know, when especially when you're partnered with a celebrity or influencer, it's easy for somebody to discover it through, you know, that celebrity you know, click, click, buy, have it sent to them. Um, it allows you, like when you start to see, you can figure out what's working, what's not working, easier to make changes. But I think ultimately we'll be on shelves. Ultimately, you know, we'll start doing pop-ups and then maybe even have our own stores if we think that's appropriate. So I think you're going to have to use a mixture of strategies, you know, and the reality is people will always continue to buy online because it's just convenient. On the other hand, I think people will always continue to go to stores and, and buy because some people like to go and do things, you know, in, in person or maybe need to touch certain things or in particular with home court. You know, I think it'll help once we're in stores for people to be able to smell the fragrances, right? Like we can try to describe to you how, how beautiful the fragrances are, but, you know, smelling and touching and seeing yourself in person is believing. Yeah, that's a good point. Like there's there are there was that trend of brands that started purely online, direct to consumer, that then evolved maybe because they were acquired or something. But I, you know, I think of like Harry's and Dollar Shave Club, like those were just to direct to consumer and now you can buy it at Target, right? So uh, and I'm sure having that skew in Target is exponential revenue that you know direct to consumer is amazing, but having that traffic in in a target is phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I said, I think a lot of those larger retail partners, you know, are ultimately like what many D2C brands should aspire to partner up with, or some like, you know, maybe they can do their own stores. I mean, you've seen the Novos, you know, and, and brands like that, sure. Ministry of Supply, they have their own, their own stores. So a hybrid strategy, I think, makes a lot of sense and is, is something that every brand should take very seriously and be thinking about. So what are your, what have you learned about building a successful consumer brand? Because that that is hard, so, you know, especially if you don't have the the celebrity component. Yeah, you know, I, I'd say like for us, there's certain key success factors that we look for. Um, you know, one is the team. I think you you have to have the right team. Like for us as a venture studio, we're involved, and so we help to make sure, like you know, that we can provide. Uh, some of the right team, but, you know, we need to hire like the right CEO and, and make sure she's or they're surrounded by um, great people. Um, but it's any consumer brand. You need to look around and see like, you know, are the people that you have, do they have the right competencies? Do you gel together? You know, is it, is it a good fit? Um, and do you have the right capabilities beyond the team? I think you need great products, you know, 
it's kind of like a no-brainer, like no duh. But the reality is, I think there are, let's say in particular with celebrity brands, there are a lot of brands out there that don't have great products. You know, they're not dif differentiated. You know, maybe they're not quality. Um, you know, I think sometimes people think you can launch a mediocre product and attach a celebrity to it, and that's going to make it work. You know, maybe 10 years ago or five years ago, that could work. But I think today, you know, we were talking about how there are more celebrity brands and there are, I mean, there's just more brands in general. So the market is increasingly saturated. I think you really need to focus on, you know, what is making your product and your brand stand out? Why would people want to try it and then come back and buy it again? So for us, we're laser focused on that. Um, you know, I think there's also, let's call it financial prudence. Um, there was a generation of D2C brands, you know, that had, let's say five, 10 years ago, that had easy access to funding. You know, there was a growth at all cost mentality. Right now, the market has changed that that mentality is gone. You know, we can argue about whether that will come back at some point, but I think the name of the game now is, you know, how can you be uh, more responsible, more prudent and try to have balanced growth, right? You still need to go for growth, but how can you do it in a way where you're not burning a ton of cash uh, on, the, on the way there? Uh, and that's something I think a lot of startups have learned a hard way that they need to focus on. And for some, it was too late, frankly. I mean, you've seen a big shakeup in the consumer brand and especially in the D2C space. Um, you know, and then, and then there's just like the operational playbook. Like you have to have your, your operations right. Um, that's everything from, you know, like, good supply chain, good fulfillment, um, good customer care processes. I think you have like, it's the nuts and bolts of the company, but you need to make sure they're all working or, or, or things can break down over time or they won't be efficient. Um, you know, you won't make your customers happy. Uh, you know, if it takes too long to get a product or, you know, there's not a good process for making returns if you're a fashion brand. Right. So I think all these little things, uh, you know, it can be death by a thousand cuts for your, for your company. All right. So what are three apps you can't live without? Three apps I can't live without. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, that's great. I think DoorDash for one. Uh, Good one. Yeah, I, I'd say Uber and Lyft, but let's count them. Let's count them as, as one. Um, yeah. And, and then I think for me, you know, I don't know if you call it kind of as an app, but I'm, I'm a big Netflix user. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, I love that. And if I can throw in a third or a fourth one, I, I love the New York Times games app. I, I do crossword puzzles on my phone. I do the spelling bee. Uh, I, you know, my parents and I, we compare like, you know, who, who hit genius first. So it's something that has brought a lot of joy to my life lately. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. My mother-in-law, she does the New York Times Sunday crossword puzzle re religiously every single week. And I, I always look at it. I'm like, how do you figure this out? <laughs> Cause it's just not, my mind isn't there of like, I think it's a learned mindset of thinking through what that answer is going to be but i'm just not there <laughs> so. yeah my my dad was like every day he would do the crossword and i just grew up watching him do that and i sort of felt like that was the thing for for dads uh and then i guess recently like a year or two ago i was like you know what i'm at that point in my life where now the crossword's for me so i enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> i'm laughing because i'm like i i actually enjoy watching jeopardy now and i'm like okay i think i finally <laughs> hit that threshold in my life where i don't i'm not doing the feud yet i'm not that old i'm getting there but i'm not the feud yet i'm not the feud i mean uh wheel of fortune the wheel the wheel but uh jeopardy i find relaxing and i'm sitting there and i like 
I get excited when I know the answer to a question, but I'm also learning a ton. So I just, I just find that fascinating. So, all right, a good podcast book recommendation. Ooh. Um, I mean, I, I've been enjoying uh, How the World Really Works. I don't, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book where I forget the author's name, but he basically is just explaining, um, I mean, kind of how the world really works, but like the energy industry, you know, are certain green technologies, are they as green as you think? You know, um, mm. how does oil move around? Or like, wh- why did oil come over and become so dominant? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he talks about everything from climate change, like what's real there, what's not real. Uh, to let's say like agriculture and medicine so touches on a lot of different subjects gives the history of it and then sort of challenges common perceptions of of each of these different areas and i i found it super interesting that sounds really interesting okay outside of work what do you like to do for fun (laughs) other than puzzles Uh, yeah i i mean i like i like cooking i train krav maga so it's like a martial arts self-defense class uh, I enjoy wine. I, I, last year I took a like two month wine course, at the level two, uh, WSCT program. Um, you know, I enjoy going to the gym and then sort of the stereotypical things, uh, dinners with friends. I still go to the occasional party, although my, my partying days have calmed down a bit. <laughs> and then, uh, I love to travel when I can. I mean, I still, I, I think I'm in New York for the time being that living abroad is, is out of my system, but mm-hmm. I, need to get, you know, out of New York, out of the country uh, a couple times a year if possible. Very cool. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, all the great work you guys are doing at Joby, and of course, all the great advice. Keith, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.